You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 16th of November 2019 on Monocle 24. It's Saturday the 16th of November. This is Monocle's House View. Today, the leader of Britain's Labour Party promises free internet for everyone. And once it's up and running, instead of you forking out your monthly bill, we'll tax the giant corporations fairly. I hope they're listening to this. We're going to tax you fairly. That includes Facebook and Google. That will help to cover the running costs of this. Is Jeremy Corbyn on to an election winner, or will voters deem the plan excessive and wasteful? I'll ask my guests, Mary Dijewski and Simon Brook. Plus, the heir to the Italian crown teases a return of the country's royal family. Could a nostalgic national mood open a window for the House of Savoy, or will the Prince of Venice be royally disappointed? And we'll review the weekend papers too. Monocle's House View starts now. Good morning, a very warm welcome to Studio One here at Midori House in a chilly, wintry London. I'm Georgina Godwin and it's a pleasure to have you with us. My guests today are two Monocle favourites, the journalists Mary Dijewski and Simon Brook. Good morning to you both. Good morning. I see that your coffees are just on their way. Cinnamon <laughs> and cardamom buns at the ready. So mm-hmm. we'll have a lovely, delicious chat this morning. Now, it's election season here in Britain. The Prime Minister Boris Johnson and the opposition Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn are due to take part in televised debates in the week ahead, and they have plenty to discuss. The Labour Party's already been stirring the political pot with a promise of free broadband for everyone. Mary, that's quite a promise, isn't it? Well, it is, and it goes quite a bit further than the promise that had been mooted from the Conservatives and Boris Johnson that he was going to extend fibre broadband all over the UK. Um, This is completely different dimension Um, and it'll be very interesting to see what sort of traction it gets in the country at large. Um, The first sort of very um, unofficial and very um, ad hoc survey suggested that it was sort of 60-40 in favour in terms of you know very rough and ready um, public opinion. Um, I have to say that um, I'm actually in favour. I know the commercial disruption could be huge. Mm. Um, British Telecom shares apparently sort of went down um, rather sharply as a result because this involves taking a slice of um, British Telecom and basically nationalising it. Mm. I mean, Simon, it's quite a hard sell to the Conservative-leaning voter, isn't it? It is, but you can see why it would be popular generally. I mean, if you're going to give away something, you know, anything you give away free is is very popular. It did make me think, of course, that this is going to be in the UK here, a Christmas election. So the political parties are playing Santa Claus like nobody's (laughs) business, aren't they? Um, I think it'll be interesting to see how it plays out as people begin to give it a bit more thought. I mean, it's a lovely idea to get it free. And it's, I think it... it, uh, very much in line with this idea that it that the broadband is a utility um, but the question is should you get those utilities free and I would say actually the reason why uh, rollout of um, the really uh, super fast um, and high fi- uh, full fibre broadband has been slow in this country uh, is probably beca- because of a lack of competition and um, open reach is, is a private company part of BT 
but actually it behaves like a nationalised company. I would say actually the way to do this is to break it up, get that competition going, and then you'd have uh, a lot more... Um, uh, a lot better offer for the for the consumer. Yeah, I mean, I might take absolutely the opposite view, actually, because the telecoms market generally is one of the most deregulated markets in the whole UK. Yet, um, we are way behind. I mean, people were talking yesterday as though we, we were behind not only most of Europe, but somewhere like Madagascar. I mean, this is really shameful um, for the UK, and we should be able to do so much better. Um, it's only recently that um, free Wi-Fi has been introduced in most British airports. Um, there was a time until about a year, two years ago, you could go to almost any airport in the world and there would be a free Wi-Fi service. Go to Heathrow, go to Gatwick and you had to register, you had to pay. It was uh, and it was very, very sporadic. Um, now, fortunately, that's changed. But how long did it take? Mm. I mean, I wonder what this means, Simon, for small companies that weren't well, not small, but, but for private companies like like Virgin, for instance. And and what, it, what that also means for the consumer, because right now, if you're not getting the service that you pay for, you leave them and you go to someone else. Yeah, it is. Well, it's competition, isn't it? It's interesting that John McDonald, the Labour shadow chancellor, who's been proposing uh, this deal has sort of been he's been sort of there's an element of, mele- of malice uh, sort of menace anyway towards uh, uh, people like Sky who are the main competitors here he's made it clear that they're, they'll be invited to take part if they want but then if they don't cooperate they will be nationalised I mean I'm old enough to remember British Rail British Coal British Steel and you know these companies didn't work so for me uh, nationalisation really um, isn't the solution I, as I say I think what we what we need is sort of greater competition here and I think um, it's also public demand as well because you're absolutely right Mary it was absolutely absurd that you'd have to pay for Wi-Fi I remember I remember being on this program a, a couple of years ago and describing on a press trip going to a five-star hotel and being charged 25 pounds for 24 hours <laughs> shocking what I mean so, I won't actually stay in a hotel now well, unless the Wi-Fi is yeah, free yeah, yeah. but yeah. We, we expect it faster but I think the way to do that is to break it up and get these plus the fact you know we the, we, we are one of the most technologically advanced countries in the world with so many exciting young tech startups, the problem is you've got this great monolith of open reach. I'm a victim of BT, <laughs> not a customer of BT. And the reason why they're so uh, uh, unresponsive to me every time I complain to them is the fact that they know really I can't go anywhere else. Mm-hmm, absolutely. I mean, Mary, the internet now is far more than just Facebook and Netflix. And being online is really a necessity with taxes, healthcare, social security, yeah. job hunting, everything, well, essential that, services that done online. exactly is one of the things I was going to say. And I think one of the, one of the reasons why I support this because in the past um, we've had successive governments basically saying you know, great big program to digitize the economy and what that involves is a lot of people who are quite dependent on the state being told that they've got to use the internet to register for their services to apply for jobs to apply for benefits the whole of the new system of universal credit is predicated on being attached to the internet and attached to the internet at a reasonable speed because these things are quite complicated and yet it's the very people who are dependent in that way who find it difficult to get access to the internet and may not have internet at home. This is a way of democratising that and 
reducing at least um, what is really a wealth and class barrier to getting on the internet in the UK. Mm. Now, of course, that's Labour's main election promise, or at least their election promise this week. Uh, Simon, what are the Conservatives' main promises? Well, get Brexit also, done. Get Brexit done. Yeah, it's interesting. That <laughs> phrase apparently has come from the focus groups because when they were asked people, uh, you know, what's your feeling on Brexit, even a large number of, number of Remainers said, we'd like to stay, but seeing as it looks like we're going to go, let's just get it done. Um, so it's interesting that, that that is very much the feeling of certainly um, seats in the north and the, the Midlands, those seats that the Tories um, need to uh, win. It hasn't been a great week, I have to say, for Boris Johnson. I think he's been a bit slow off the mark when it comes to the floods. Um, he should have been there a lot earlier, um, especially, as I say, as very often, coincidentally, these floods are affecting the kind of northern working-class seats that the Tories bizarrely, and what a change in politics this is, the old Etonian uh, Prime Minister targeting these seats. So it hasn't it's been quite, such a great week It's quite great unusual for, for Boris Johnson because, in fact, almost the moment he became Prime Minister, he was out there visiting schools and hospitals. Absolutely. And the moment there was anything that smacked of any sort of natural disaster, there was there was the near collapse of the dam in, in, in Derbyshire, I think. Um, and he was up there like absolute lightning, yes. commissioning his helicopter and going, going up there to sea. And yet with the floods... The yeah. And floods, you know, I remember floods in Germany in the approaching election. Um, floods are very emotive and they, you know, it's the pictures, it's the it's stories. It's the pictures, of the, isn't it? And the human can, stories, they, the they, suffering. They yeah. affect elections. Yeah. And for Boris not to have been up there mm. on day one. Mm. And he's a natural campaigner, exactly, isn't he? He loves yes. doing this. I don't. Yeah. I think he finds the business of, of, of diplomacy and, and red boxes and that kind of stuff a bit boring. But getting out there yeah. and meeting people and doing sound bites, I think he absolutely loves. So yeah, it is funny. There's. I imagine the Conservative campaigners decided they've learned something from this. They're going to have to be a little bit more mm. fleet of foot and there was, respond There was to. some suggestion that he was advised that going up there sort of with a prime ministerial entourage um, would disrupt the, um, the, danger, the, 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 the rescue yeah. and salvage efforts yeah. and the rest I've, of it. I've been quite surprised by just how inarticulate he's been yes. when questioned yeah. by the press. He just mm. flounders, doesn't he? It's, I mean, it's very unusual because... Everything you you saw and watched of Boris Johnson before, you thought that he would actually be very good at that. Mm. That he would that, that he would be both articulate and good at communicating and that's always how he seemed and when he was mayor of london that that, that, that that's how he came across and how i think he won his second term in, in, as as london mayor but somehow he's sort of descended into this sort of blustering waffle not really quite sure where it's at um, and that could be a problem for him because mm. it looked as though the opposite was going to be a big asset, and that asset so far hasn't been there. Mm. I think he's good at tweets, isn't he, and he's good at the quick soundbite or whatever, but it is surprising, actually, as you say, because um, I've been frustrated because you can see the message he should be getting yes. across uh, that yes. obviously he's been briefed on, but he's got a slightly annoying habit of... Uh, being a bit slow on his feet and sort of responding to the question a bit too much. Mm -hmm. I mean, now, Nigel Farage and his Brexit party seem to be defying Donald Trump, who suggested that they work with Boris Johnson's Tories to make Brexit happen. 
How damaging is Farage's continuing to run candidates in marginal Tory seats to the Conservatives, Mary? Well, it's a lot less damaging now than it was before he agreed to stand down half of them. Um, so I think maybe um, we're not quite into hung Parliament territory or even um, Labour victory territory. Um, nonetheless, obviously, um, Boris Johnson and brackets Donald Trump would obviously um, prefer it um, if there were much greater, if, if the two parties were cooperating much more closely and were seen to be in league. But I think maybe this is something that Boris Johnson or at least his team appreciates, which is that if they get any closer to the Brexit party than they are now, they lose a crucial, they lose maybe more votes than they would gain. Um, and that is a calculation that has to be made in this country. It can't be made across the Atlantic. Mm. Now, of course, television debates are, are, are about to happen, but the Lib Dems who are campaigning on stopping Brexit don't seem to be getting equal TV debate time. Why is that, Simon? And is it fair? Well, the problem is that there are regulations around this, but to a large extent also, it's a, a question of editorial judgment really so it depends the uh, the the, the uh, editors have to look at what they think i think will make the most interesting debate won't it won't they um and the problem is perhaps the lib dems don't get a much of a look in here i think you know that it, it would be very interesting because a lot of people would say here is the only party that is advocating for remain so if you're going to have a pres uh, you know a, i was going to say presidential if you're going to have a prime ministerial debate um not only in terms of the sort of party political balance but in terms of the the, the you know comment on this major issue that it's important for the Lib Dems to to be there but um, I, I think it's as I say it's a judgment for for, for the uh, editors to make and I think perhaps there's an idea that in a way a punch-up between um, uh, Jeremy Corbyn and Boris Johnson just the two of them very different styles we've never seen them debate together that could be interesting perhaps Joe Swinson's problem in a way is that she comes across as perhaps a little bit too calm and reasonable for the kind of <laughs> rumbustuous punch-up that uh, that uh, journalists would like I think there, there is a real question of, uh, of justice though and I'm not sure that it should be left to the editors to decide because this is a, this is a national election it's an election it's an election to the national yeah, parliament yeah she has an important and, voice um, Yes, uh, she has an important... But I think there's a bigger technical problem, actually, um, which is that the Liberal Democrats were not actually the third party in the old parliament. They were actually the fourth party. So technically, it would be quite difficult to say, well, we'll let in the Liberal Democrats rather than the, the, the Scottish, Scottish Nationalists. National, mm, but then National what relevance party, for the Scottish the, Nationalists? Well, exactly, because the moment you have the Scottish debate. Nationalists in there, yeah. then you have the Welsh Nationalists and yeah. everybody else wanting yeah. to come in. Now, there is another debate, well, it's called a debate, mm. but it's, which is going to involve all the parties, so that will presumably involve the Brexit Party, the Greens and the Nationalist Parties um, and the Liberal Democrats. But, you know, if I were Joe Swinson, I would be absolutely pursuing this mm. and in the headlines every day, complaining that the one strong voice for Remain is not going yeah. to be represented mm. at this I, debate. I think what's really interesting here is you've got the sort of a clash between two trends here. There's the trend for the party leaders 
debate, which we've only seen in the last sort of probably, what, seven or eight years or something, haven't we? Meanwhile, you've also seen this fractu- uh, fracturing of politics, whatever. So that sort of party leaders debate would work well if you just had three parties that had scooped up almost all the vote. That would be fine. But given, as you say, we've got the influence of the Scots Nats, the Brexit party would say that they need to have a, a voice here as well, given, uh, the, you know, the, the support they've had, it, certainly hitherto. And so um, how you have so many different people taking part in a leader's debate, inverted commas, is very difficult to see, both in terms of editorial and regulation. I mean, one of the things that we haven't mentioned, which I think is very interesting this time around, is that we're talking about the debates as though they're now a fixture of British election. Um, In fact, at the last election and the election before in 2017 and um, 2015, um, both the, the party leaders then and the prime ministers then made a gigantic fuss mm. about not taking part in elections. And while it didn't seem to damage David Cameron in it 2015, certainly it certainly May, damaged Theresa May. The whole May campaign in, was about in, her, in and then she wouldn't do the debate. And what we've seen this time, or rather what we haven't seen, is any objection from anybody to taking part. And I think maybe um, this is actually something that is to Boris Johnson's credit, that he hasn't said... He obviously thinks that he's probably quite good at debating um, and therefore he doesn't have any problem with it. But there's been no question about it. It's just sort of happened and Boris Johnson was on an hour-long phone-in yesterday on the BBC. The other party leaders are going to be doing this. At the last two elections... Who was going to appear, when they were going to appear, in what format they were going to appear. It was a gigantic issue. Mm. Mm. This time it's not. And I think that's a very, very good thing. Now, as Boris Johnson might say, tempus fugit, so let's move on. Uh, It's time for Italians to return to the old elegance and splendour. That's how the heir to Italy's crown announced his upcoming return via a rather cryptic post to social media this week. Now, some are speculating that the dethroned prince is taking part in a reality television programme. But having already run unsuccessfully for political office, there is reason to suspect that Emmanuel de Savoia may have other things in mind. So could the Prince of Venice have his eye on a position of power? What do we think, Simon? Well, I think given the chaos of Italian politics uh, over the last few years, you think, well, why not? You know, um, uh, you know, it could add some stability. Um, I mean, I have to say, I'm a monarchist in a sort of practical sense. I think it very often they work, um, certainly in, in, the, in Britain with the, uh, the, the Queen Elizabeth. I think uh, I love the idea that a, that a prime minister, she's the one person that a prime minister can trust. Do you know what I mean? There's nobody else that they can talk to, unburden themselves, ex, you, know, re- you know, reveal their innermost angst or whatever without the fear that they'll read about it uh, as a source revealed that in, in the media the next day. But um, the, the Queen is the one person there's never been in 60 years, there's never been a leak from the audience. So it works well for us. I think the problem here is when he talks about sort of elegance and sophistication and dignity and stuff like that, he's one of the last people to, to, to talk about that, I'm afraid. I don't want to, uh, um, you know, be too rude about the, the pretender, but he does have quite a colourful uh, private life, uh, shall we say. So I'm generally in favour of monarchies. I think they sort of work very well, but I think they're going to have to find a better candidate in this case. <laughs> well, and uh, And Mary, of course, we know that floods have devastated Venice this week and many Venetians are putting this down to incompetence and corruption on the part of local government who haven't ensured that a a crucial flood barrier is built. So whatever his position, the Prince of Venice, as as he is called, is bound.
bound to be associated with this. I mean, it must damage his prospects. Well, one would assume so, except that um, on the other side, you could say that he's now got a cause. I mean, he's he, he's got both a platform and, and a cause that he can represent, so maybe he can put himself out there. Um, I, I would also say one thing that's very interesting, even though in Italy maybe you wouldn't think that the, um, the return of sort of um, monarchy and all its trappings and the sort of aristocratic elegance and restoration of, um, of, of country houses and things um, would necessarily quite fit in with the modern spirit. Across East and Central Europe, there's been a fantastic rise in interest in the aristocracies of the past. And if you go into um, some of the embassies in London, um, very soon after the collapse of communism, they were restoring their embassies insofar as they could afford to do it and reintroducing all sorts of um, trappings and portraits of aristocrats from Austro-Hungary and um, really bygone ages. So there is a flourishing of that sort of thing, at least in that part of Europe. Would that lead to a restoration somewhere, do you think? Uh, um, Romania is quite, they're quite keen on their king, aren't they? I think, yes, ex-king. and so, so far it hasn't happened. Um, but there, you know, there remains this uh, a degree of respect for people with aristocratic names and people who've been returning with the traditions, um, as is seen by the people who actually lived under communism, with the tra- having kept faith with the traditions. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, we'll stick with the royals because coming up next it's the newspapers and one of the stories we're going to look at is whether Prince Andrew uh, really did uh, uh, have sex uh, with uh, somebody who absolutely did not want that to happen. This is all connected to Jeffrey Epstein. So let's start with the papers. But in fact, we'll start with something slightly more serious. Uh, in the Times, we're looking at Roland Rudd, who was uh, the chair of the People's Vote. Now, he's resigned and also from it from another position. Uh, there seems to be, Simon, a great deal of infighting within this group. It does, I have to say. If you like politics and gossip and infighting and confrontation, this is just the gift that keeps on giving, really, isn't it? It's just amazing. So, yes, you're as you say, the, uh, the Times reporting today that Roland Rudd, the, the millionaire PR man, has resigned from the People's Vote campaign and also stood down um, as chairman of Open Britain, which is one of the pro-EU groups, uh, which is also campaigning for a second referendum. Um, Roland Rudd has been replaced as chairman of uh, Open Britain by Anne Wayman, who is a former chief executive of the Family Planning Association. So there's probably there's probably some joke in there, which I'm afraid I can't make at this time of the morning. But um, It's also it's, too dirty, it's actually. Probably, yes, exactly. <laughs> I don't know. Withdrawing and stuff like that. Anyway, yeah. let's move on. But um, I think what I think what's interesting here is that um, it's amazing the way this campaign has sort of imploded. Um, I think anybody who is uh, keen on Britain remaining in the EU must be very dep- depressed by it. And what I can't understand is Roland Rudd is in that tradition of... Um, brilliant PR gurus such as Peter Mandelson and Alistair Campbell who become the story themselves. Mm. I mean, I would have thought, I mean, I would say that as somebody who's been involved in political campaigning uh, and communications, book one, rule one is don't make yourself the story. Um, and it's interesting to see that somebody who's clearly been very, very successful at doing PR for other people has made such an appalling hash of it himself. Yeah, and so not, I mean, not just such an appalling hash of it himself, but of a cause, yes. which is so clear. 
um, and and the would seem almost to for. argue for itself. Yeah. And yet, the, 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 this this whole Such campaign a clear, simple message has, has imploded and dissolved into all sorts of different factions. Mm. Uh, and as we know, of course, uh, Brexit and, and Leave or Remain is absolutely influencing uh, commerce here in this country and manufacturing. And Elon Musk has decided that his new car factory uh, will happen in Germany now. Yes, a real blow to um, a lot of um, pro um, pro uh, leave um, people in in the UK. Exactly, this is just the kind of um, enterprise that they would love to attract to Britain. But as you say, um, Elon Musk in the in a typically um, flamboyant style has announced that he, actually he's going to be establishing his factory for Tesla in Germany. And the Financial Times makes the point this morning, it's not just he, in fact what he hasn't done it uh, is done is to situate it in uh, Baden-Württemberg, home of Daimler, Bosch, Porsche um, and, uh, and um, also nearby Volkswagen factories as well. What he's done is to put it near, near Berlin. Um, so why has he done this? Well apparently uh, the paper suggests that um, uh, it's the symbolism of locating near Berlin, one of Europe's hippest cities uh, with a huge uh, pool of technical talent, is significant. Berlin rocks, uh, Mr. Musk said when he unveiled the plan. So um, assuming, I mean, there's a m- number of messages here. Presumably he wants to differentiate himself from traditional car making. This is more about technology. But also I think the bigger thing in PR terms is, you know, this is a hip uh, car manufacturer, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And Elon Musk very much, well, as, as you say about Roland Rudd and Alistair Campbell and so on, Elon Musk always the story within his, his, Very much so. his company. Uh, let's go to France now and Le Mans now. Of course, it's, it's, a, it's a year since uh, Gilets Jaunes protests started. Have they petered away, Mary? Well, they sort of have petered away, but um, Le Mans has this very interesting um, page-long feature for the year anniversary, and it's headed the um, social shockwave of the Gilets Jaunes a year on. And one of the things that it notes is that although it may indeed um, have petered out, or at least not not quite petered out, that it's had a colossal effect on France, and not just on France, but on the whole sort of um, techniques of camp- uh, of campaigning and protesting, um, the way that it used social media, um, the fact it points out um, interestingly that. It didn't claim a single hour of working time to strikes. It used completely different methods. Um, so the people who were protesting weren't losing any money. They were doing this in their own time, and they were hugely effective. Um, as Le Monde also points out, um, they actually won more concessions from the government, arguably, than almost any other protest, mo- protest movement in the recent past. Mm. I mean, Simon, we're seeing uh, um, Macron now facing problems with uh, pensions and is there a danger that that any kind of strike or industrial action that's going to take place around that pension reform uh, may now come together with the gilets I think that's the problem. Um, one thing you uh, that you you really do at your peril as a French president obviously is to to, to uh, attack or try and reform anyway the very generous uh, French pension scheme. I think it's interesting um, obviously Macron has always had this great um, uh, tailwind behind him, um, you know, uh, a remarkable success setting up his own um, 
political party and then winning an election. Um, I think, he, presumably, he has the chutzpah, he has the self-confidence to think that um, he can do something about... Uh, he will be the president who fixes French pre, uh, French pensions. But as you say, the danger is that, um, you know, the, the Gilets Jaunes thing, they're so agile. I mean, WhatsApp groups, social media, if, there's any, if he does anything they don't like, very soon we could see these uh, demonstrations starting again. Mm. Let's get to the royals now. We've got to do it, haven't we? Uh, so Prince Andrew on almost every single British front page. I let the side down, he says. He was asked, did you sleep with Virginia Roberts? I have no recollection of meeting this lady, he said. So uh, this was a televised interview for Newsnight. Emily Maitlis went to the palace, grilled him. We're told that he didn't get pre-approval of the questions, that this was a genuine television grilling. Uh, and he did say that he... Uh, felt that he hadn't behaved like a proper member of the royal family because he continued to have a relationship with Epstein after his arrest. Uh, Mary, what do we think? <laughs> what do we think? Well, so far we only have little bits of this interview, so it's probably hard to judge without seeing the whole the, the whole hour-long um, operation. It's also interesting that it's sort of that the royals appear to have chosen this sort of confessional format again, the Princess Diana format, um, to as it were to get a view across direct to the public. But of the clips so far, I mean, I have to say that. Um, I don't find them particularly convincing. I mean, if if Prince Andrew was hoping that he was going to clear his name and that all this would go away, um, just from just from what we've seen so far, it doesn't look like that. No, absolutely, mm. Simon. Well, I think it's interesting. The programme they chose was Newsnight. Obviously, Princess Diana gave her. Um, interview to Panorama. They haven't gone for a sort of a more tabloid breakfast daytime mm -hmm. television format. I think that's absolutely right. Emily Maitlis, a serious heavyweight interviewer doing the interviews. I think the thing, these interviews only work well if A, you're prepared to be completely um, honest and completely uh, apologetic. Um, the danger is if you're not both, and I'm let the side down, it's worse than that really, isn't it? Yeah. Really, the way it looks anyway. So I think you've got to be completely, express complete sorrow for what you've done, and you've got to make sure you answer every question. Otherwise the danger is, it just opens a can of worms, and there are other sort of uh, stories that can emerge from it. Yeah, absolutely, but grilled by Maitlis or grilled by the police, people are saying that perhaps it should be the, <laughs> the latter, and I just have to say one more thing before we go about this, in all the photographs, what great shoes she's wearing. <laughs> <laughs> that's I, the important thing against that carpet though what I had another there? impression which is okay the shoes are one thing the carpet uh, this the is Buckingham Palace my goodness <laughs> awful carpet do have a look at the pictures across all British front pages uh, that's all uh, we have for today we're going to eat our buns now and discuss in more detail the royal family I'm quite sure uh, but meanwhile my thanks to uh, Mary Dijewski and to Simon Brook our supervising producer was Ben Ryland our researcher was Samia Hannes and our studio manager was Nora Hull. The Arts Weekender is next. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. Music